Welcome to the HR Think Tank, our podcast that uncovers the power a trusted workforce has on team performance, culture, and morale. We gather insights from experts, business leaders, and HR professionals to help you lead your team more effectively. Here's your host, Kai No, CEO of Verify Now, a trusted provider of background screening services. We're living in an age of exponential digital growth, innovation, and opportunity. But is there fair access to this new economy for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? Our guest today is Liam Ridgway, co-founder of NGNY and Indigitech, who's not just talking the talk about the Indigenous digital economy, but he's out there making things happen. Liam is passionate about supporting the sustainability and enhancement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture through the influence and use of technology, as well as running a 100% Indigenous-owned digital agency in NGNY, Liam is also active in consulting with government bodies like the Australia Council for the Arts and by increasing the participation and success of Indigenous people in the tech industry. Welcome to the HR Think Tank, Liam. Great to have you on the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Liam, uh, before we kick things off, can I just get you to do some some introduction and just you know give us some of the, the cultural protocols, and then we'll talk about some of those items specifically. Yeah, absolutely. So, my name's Liam Ridgway. Um, on my dad's line, um, well, I'm Aboriginal. On my dad's line, I'm Gumbangara and Dungari. So, I'm from the north coast of New South Wales. Um, so, known as Gurries. So, in 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 the context of, of Australia, so you might hear about Koori's, Gori's, Murray's, Nungas, Nungas, Yonga people. Um, so different different locations um, have, uh, I guess, different uh, uh, labels or, or names um, mm-hmm. essentially for for groups of um, people. Um, so on my dad's line, I'm, I'm a Gori. Um, on my mum's line, I'm Murray. So Murray uh, people are from um, Queensland, um, and I'm uh, Gullili. Um, so from the Gullili Nation, which is out western. Queensland towards mm-hmm. the um, South Australian Northern Territory border. Yeah. Um, and then I'm um, from the Waka Waka people as well, which is a place called um, Schoberg, um, which is a place of many nations as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's in, um, you know, Southeast Queensland, about three hours Northwest of Brisbane. And um, that's quite an interesting one in terms of like historically, yeah. um, a lot of different nations and clans were brought into, into Schoberg and yes. it was essentially um, a mission and um, it's a predominantly Aboriginal um, uh, town. So, um, but I've always grown up mm-hmm. on on Gadigal country. So I've spent probably ninety five percent of my life um, on Gadigal country. But I was born on Biripai country, which is Foster mm-hmm. in northern New South Wales, um, and then uh, and then moved to, to mm-hmm. Sydney to Gadigal country. But then spent time um, on Bunjalung country yeah. uh, as well, up in Tweed Heads. Um, went to school there for for a little while. And then also um, uh, on Gumbangana country as well in Sawtell, just south yeah. of, of Coffs Harbour. So um, mostly Gadigal, but yeah. I've moved around a little bit um, through my journey. And, and you know what we'll do? We'll actually link to the, the Aboriginal map of Australia. I think IATSIS was the one that produced this a number of years back, but we'll produce it. Uh, sorry, we'll share it in the link because today we're recording in North Parramatta on the land of the direct people. So it's, it's great to have you on the show. And, you know, you and I have had many interesting conversations um, in the past, but today we've got you on to talk, you know, about the Indigenous digital economy. But before we talk about that, I just want to go through some cultural protocols. I think it's, I think it's helpful to cover some of these um, topics or some of these questions that listeners may have for those that are less aware. I think it'll be really helpful for those that who who have attended and are more culturally aware. It's still a good reminder. So if you want to just, uh, if I can just ask you first, you know. Um, what is what is a welcome to country, and what's the difference 
with an acknowledgement of country. Um, and why do you think we're seeing more of it I- at public events? Yep. Yeah, so I guess to, to answer the first question, so the, the welcome to country is uh, um, a traditional welcome, welcoming by the traditional owners of um, the land that, that um, people are meeting on or gathering on. Mm. Um, so typically um, people who are traditional owners will be descendants of that particular um, location. So I'm a descendant of the Gumbangara people. Yeah. Um, I'd be able to do a welcome to country on Gumbangara country mm-hmm. to welcome other people onto onto that country. Yeah. Um, there's still a rite of passage mm-hmm. because I haven't lived on Gumbangara country most of my life. Um, I'd still have to go through a rite of passage to be able to uh, be able to do that. So it's not like I can just say, well, because I'm yeah. Gumbangara, I can go in and, yeah. and do a welcome to country. Um, but I'd have to get that acknowledgement from my family, my community, my elders to be able to do that. Yeah. And then an acknowledgement of country is a recognition of being able to talk about that you acknowledge that you are on, on the lands of a particular um, group. Yeah. Um, that acknowledgement doesn't need to be done by an Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander person. That can be done by uh, anyone who is comfortable in that space. So what we uh, often do is encourage um, uh, non-Indigenous people, non-Indigenous Australians to be able to uh, feel comfortable to mm-hmm. to do acknowledgement. So, uh, so so occasionally I'll be um, I'll be in a space and someone's like, oh hey, would you like to do the acknowledgement? I'm like, actually, I think it's yeah. important for you to be able to do it and start yeah. to feel comfortable um, to be able to do that. And it's really really great, um, you know. And I guess to to the last question around seeing so many more people doing um, acknowledgements and also yeah. um, recognizing um, welcome to countries. Um, there is an increased understanding and desire to want to learn more and be involved in yeah. um, those protocols. And those protocols uh, typically happen because historically, um, where I'm from, you know, there's meeting places and different clans mm. used to come into the meeting places. So in Ongumbangara country, we used to have um, uh, Dungari people visit um, country, um, Bunjalung people and Gamilaroi people, and they would come into that space, including you know sometimes Birupai and Waramai, mm. and then so there's there's a there's a welcoming that yeah, happens, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in, in in that space. Absolutely, well, like, you know, and I can even talk to this as it relates to. So more so, I guess an interesting fact is that um, my wife, she's half Aboriginal, half Papua New Guinean, yeah. and um, and they have similar welcoming um, protocols. Um, uh, when we're up in Papua New Guinea and being welcomed and and, and being allowed mm, to walk mm, mm. Um, in a space, and so you see a lot of um, uh, commonality within within that, you know. And I guess when you look at Papua New Guinea, you know, it's like Aboriginal um, a- Aboriginal Australia, Torres Strait Islands, and Papua New Guinea. So you know, there is a lot of like cultural connection yeah. um, and, and you know and similarities between um, our cultures. But I guess going back to you know your first question, the reason why there's such a um, I guess a drive as well to be able to want to connect and learn as I guess you can see, I guess, an evolution in, in society with um, more people being able to connect and understand with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I grew up in, in you know, in, in the city of Sydney and for me there was a lot of um, connecting with people of all different backgrounds yeah, and then yeah. so having that connection but them being exposed to me and my mm-hmm. culture, that – yeah. That, that was something that became um, normalised, whereas historically, you know, and, and still in some parts of the country, there was more like segregation and so there wasn't necessarily a desire to, to do that. I, I think I think it's it's amazing, you know, the journey that we're on at the moment. I think we've still got a long way to go. It's a big part of our country's identity and like you said, historically, you know, it was something that was um, was not allowed to be spoken about, certainly was not celebrated. And I think we've got a lot of ground 
to make up for that. I, I was saying to you earlier that I went to you know public school in Southwest Sydney, and and when I went to school, all of our house colors were Aboriginal names. You know, when I've spoken to other people, they had red, yellow, green, blue, you know, typical colors, but our colors were always Aboriginal names. So, you know, I was in the house of Viora and I've always known that. And we, you know, uh, we had a big mural uh, across different sections of our schools. I think my principal must have been, you know, ahead of his time because now, you know, it's it's almost an expectation and it's it's great to see. I'm so happy that we're doing it more. Like how does how does it feel for you? seeing that Australia is embracing reconciliation more. It makes me feel good about seeing the, the progress that's being made, you know, I guess over the years and, and knowing what some um, people from my community um, historically have been able to do yeah. to, just to allow us to even get to the point um, where we are today. Um, you know, there, in, in my community there would be some people who would challenge it and say that it's not enough. But for me, I recognise that, you know, and it's purely my opinion and my perspective yeah. – that it's a journey and mm. I see this journey, um, you know, um, making strides and I'm not saying that, you know, we're anywhere near yeah. um, the finish line, but I think that there's a huge opportunity to continue to push down this path and we're going on that in that right trajectory to continue to, to do this. And, you know, like I'll walk into a space now and people, mm. will, uh, will, you know, ask me about, you know, um, where I'm from, like mm. a non-Indigenous person will ask me, you know, where I'm from and I think, you know, that's important or they'll talk about the acknowledgement or they'll say, oh, yeah, we've got a meeting. Oh, by the way, we're, we're going to the Gadigal room. Yeah. You know, and so they, you know, similar to your experience yeah. at school, the the meeting rooms now have you know names Aboriginal that are names. Aboriginal names yeah. of you know the local category nation. So I just think it's so important for us to move ahead. We actually need to recognize and embrace our 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 history, our full history, not just you know our Western civilization yep. history yep. Um, that's been you know two hundred plus years, but we've got so much more. And and when I talk to my colleagues who work in you know, international dis- diplomacy or business, I'm like, Australia's got a bigger identity. And once we embrace our full identity, yep. we actually have a lot of uniqueness and strength to build from that. And when we do that, when we can reconcile with who we actually are, then we'll figure out who we want to be and yep. we can go down that path. Because I feel like there's this, you know, there's been this friction um, that we, we haven't overcome yet. And, and, you know, there is right now, we won't go into the details, but right now there are those political debates around how we move forward um, with, with reconciliation. Yep, I completely agree. And I think, you know, you know, there's a whole conversation around, um, you know, closing the gap and it's mm-hmm. been a government policy for, for so many years. And I think there's one thing that I, I often talk about as well as, you know, there's a gap on both sides. There's mm-hmm. a gap around obviously oh. lifestyle, like, you know, living standards, like mm-hmm. health, education, mm-hmm. et cetera, mm-hmm. that uh, things that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, you know, are addressing through, you know, government policy mm-hmm, and things mm-hmm. like that. But but there's the opposite side as well, which is how is non-Indigenous Australia also learning to understand yeah. um, about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mm-hmm. culture mm-hmm. and to go on actually that, that shared journey because it's kind of like saying, well, how do we meet in the middle instead of saying, well, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people need to move, move all yeah, the way yeah, over yeah, here yeah, just yeah. to, to kind of close, close yeah. that gap. So I think there's quite a big um, opportunity in that. In fact, the way that I would look at it, if I even tie it back to, to work is mm-hmm. – is its user experience. It's like it's, <laughs> okay. it's like how do you actually build something where people actually yeah. want to come and use it and then so you yeah. actually have this shared journey to get to this point where all parties who are involved in this get to that that point where they want to achieve something, yeah. um, a common outcome. Well, we're going to explore that a lot more. Um, well, I, I just want to ask you one last thing before we move into talking about the Indigenous digital economy 
in great detail is around, you know, labels terms, you know. So when people are looking at print or media, you'll hear Aboriginal, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, you'll hear Indigenous, you'll hear First Nations. What's the best approach in terms of, you know, which label to use when addressing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? So, you know, give us give us a basic rundown of this. Yeah, so... So I guess that there isn't necessarily what I would say um, one best approach because what will, what will happen is with different audiences, different people, mm-hmm. they will have a, a different perspective or definition of what they would like to be um, referred to. But you know, originally, I'll put it this way: as I was growing up, you know, I was I grew up being, being Aboriginal, yep. and then you know when I was in in primary school, and then when I get to high school, all of a sudden I'm Indigenous, and then and then you know, and then now that I'm you know in my working environment, I'm all of a sudden First Nations now, and so it's like this evolution of mm. of, of terminology. And you know, f- for me, it's it's um, you know I will talk about it, and I'll like I'm I'm not for or against any of those those terms personally, in my mm. opinion. But I will also say to someone, I'm like I'm Aboriginal, um, but I'm from these 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 nations, and yeah. I'll talk about where I'm from. And so for me, yes, my Aboriginality is about my connection to other mm. um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people all across the nation. But then I define it down to culturally where I'm from. So then that says, yeah, this yeah. is where. And like ancestrally, this is where my people are from. This is why I'm connected with. Yeah. This is my family lineage and, and whatnot. And I think in our community as well, we because we're um, such tight knit communities, we have big families as well. And so understanding lineage and where you yeah. fit is is a really important thing. And actually, I'll give you an example. I yesterday I was um had a quick quick lunch break between work, and um, I was up the street, and this um young Aboriginal. Guy said to me, he goes, oh, do you have a, a, a um, couple of dollars? Um, I was like, yep, just I'll, I'll, I'm just going to grab some food. I'll, and I grabbed some food for him as well. And, yeah. I, and I gave him a couple of dollars. Yeah. And I was like, oh, um, you know, and this is what we say when we meet uh, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Oh, where's your mob from? Yeah. And he said, oh, I'm from Sherbrooke. And I was like, and I turned no around way. and said, oh, you're Waka Waka. And yeah. he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I'm Waka Waka too. And then we and we had this this conversation, and he told me about his family. And I said, yeah. who my family are? And he's like, well, we're related. I'm related to your, your family. And then you know, so we have these these types of conversations, and that's that kinship and connection mm-hmm. um, side of things. And that's why when I talk about again talking about identity, so yes, I can talk about being Aboriginal, yeah. but it will come down to yeah. that point of like, well, where do I come from? Because yeah. then I can actually create those deeper yeah. connections with people. Because it's a big land. We live we live on a lot a lot of land, and I think just just one. Uh, thing to clarify for people, you know, uh, Aboriginal people, it's generally the, the mainland. Yep. Torres Strait is the Torres Strait, which is on the northern tip yep. of, of uh, uh, far north Queensland. If you look up that, there's the Torres Strait and I think it's five islands. Yeah, uh, yeah, correct. Oh, there's actually – and there's, there's um, smaller Around um, scattered islands yeah. as well, yeah. And, and Torres Strait Islander culture um, aligns a little bit with Aboriginal culture, but there's a lot of alignment with – Papua New Guinea yeah, and, yeah, um, yeah. culture and practices as well. So, and there's traditional trading routes between. And, and people will see this on the map that we share because I think it's vital for people to see that. Um, but thank you so much for, for sharing that. Are there any other cultural protocols that you want to cover, you know, in, in this initial part of our, our episode? Yeah. So I think uh, one of the other things as well is just acknowledging, um, you know, like our ancestors. And this is where, you know, we talk about when we, we, when we do acknowledgements mm-hmm. and welcome to countries is mm-hmm. talking about our um, ancestors, our elders, um, you know, and our emerging elders as well. Yep. Um, you know, so really being able to just um, highlight those and the importance of those yeah. and the role that they've played in, uh, I guess, where we're, where we're at today as as a, as a community, yeah. but then also as a as a society as non Indigenous Australia as well. Yeah. I have to say, I think the public leaders um, and events specifically are doing it well. Like they're doing it often. 
international events, like sorry, when we're hosting in Australia, but for international occasion, and it's giving people that exposure. And when people don't know about it, they ask. Yeah. They ask or they go and look it up and they're like, oh, okay, that's great. You know, first time visitors into Australia and they're, they're coming to Vivid or something and there's an opening night and, and people are doing a welcome to country or acknowledgement of country. I've seen when they've opened buildings, so, you know, new university campuses or whatever, they're doing a welcome to country and they've got traditional owners coming on um, and, it's, and it's a great thing. It's, it's so mesmerizing. Uh, you feel proud, Yep. you know, you, you don't feel ashamed thinking, oh, you know, we're doing everything wrong. It's like, no, this is, I, this is good. And I think that's an important thing as well is that we all feel proud about it because it's it's our shared history yeah. um, as well, you know, yeah. and so. And me as a non-Indigenous person can feel proud, you know, yeah. that we've got this cultural connection, yeah. you know, this this rich history um, all across the land. Yep. Yeah. So, so you've coined this term Indigenous digital economy. Right. This is what our main, the main part of the show today. We wanted to talk about this. Can you tell us more about this concept? You know, how and, and how can it positively impact Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, and communities? So, I guess there's a few, few layers to the Indigenous digital economy. And that's, and I guess it's kind of um, come about from many different people's um, experiences, particularly, I guess, my experience when I um, finished university. Mm-hmm. I went and um, I landed my first job at Microsoft um, in the early 2000s. And um, at the time, um, I was um, the first Aboriginal person that ended up working at, at Microsoft um, wow. at, at the time. And so, um, didn't discover it until about nine months into <laughs> into into my journey because um, uh, HR had found out, oh, there's this, this um, I was known as a contractor at the time because yeah. that was my original role. And it's like, oh, there's an Aboriginal guy who's, who's a contractor. And then the whole conversation, they're like, oh, you're actually our, our first um, Aboriginal person to work here. And yeah. I was like proud of that to be me, but I was also disappointed about the fact in, you know, in the early 2000s, you know, Microsoft had been around for close to 20 years at the time and that there hadn't been any mm. um, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people mm. before me. My journey through that, um, so I saw two other Aboriginal people. Um, so I was there for five years and two yeah. other Aboriginal people came in to Microsoft um, at the time. They actually came in and both left before before I did. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that really um, had an impact on me because um, I'd always felt like um, I was having these conversations with people and teaching a lot of people about Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander culture, but also feeling, I guess, the I guess the, the weight of, of, of that too. Mm. And then on top of that, couple that then with feeling imposter syndrome as well. So I'd walk into this, this workplace mm. that, you know, in the early 2000s, that, you know, they're making ways to try to um, understand individuals within the workplace, but there wasn't necessarily an awareness or an understanding of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and culture. Mm-hmm. And so I was just kind of thrown into this mix. And so I felt like an imposter because I was yeah. like, I was just kind of in there. And then so what ended up happening was that reflection of that journey, I ended up forming um, a charity called Indigitech. Um, and Indigitech um, provides learning um, and career pathways for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, mm-hmm. in, into STEM, yeah. and uh, through that um, that journey of being able to create that, that was a reflection of some of the stuff that I went through and some of the things that mm-hmm. I saw. And how do we then now utilize this to create safe workspaces and safe working environments for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, so that this doesn't even this mm-hmm. whole conversation around mm-hmm. safety and work yeah, yeah. isn't a thing in the future because it's just recognised, um, and not just for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but for all people of all different walks of life, yeah. that they 
don't have to have a safe space anymore because it's just normal that you go into like yeah yeah, it's just it's just normalized and and so you know so um so when we talk about i guess the term indigenous digital economy that's what it is from like i guess a um, corporate career and workplace perspective then the other side of it as well is looking at um, technology and the role that technology can play in the preservation um of culture in particular Mm. elements um we don't want to just say like oh yeah technology is a silver bullet that's going to be able to resolve you know any cultural um uh challenges or opportunities but how does it coexist with with culture in the most appropriate way Mm. so that doesn't come in and then actually negatively affect um you know cultural retention cultural practice um you know and those sorts of things so our goal is to really look at the role that technology plays in communities um uh, and then finding that balance of investing in technology but in the most appropriate way but then how that then drives also economic opportunity economic participation self-determination yeah. and then the role that technology the learning around technology and the tools can actually play a role within those communities so yeah. someone in, in, in one of those communities might be able to say oh yeah i want to learn more about this particular type of technology and they can choose to learn more about yeah. it and then explore a career pathway how, and and how are you seeing the traction because, you know, I know you're a strong advocate for education, training, development for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and, and to get into this space. How, how are you, you know, how's the progress going? It's, it's definitely, um, it's not as fast as when you kind of compare it to the, um, like the non-Indigenous market. If you kind of mm-hmm. look at um, the rest of Australia, there are a lot more, obviously a lot more people, um, you know, who are interested and comfortable to move into this space. Um, what what we've done with Indigitech is we we've built the community um a community and we want that to continue to grow um but at the moment we're um between 150 and 200 um, members at the moment mm. and the goal is to utilize their stories to be able to continue to push yeah. um more so yeah so it's not like going talking about it from a qualifications um perspective and mm. you know you need to go and have this certification and mm. you need to learn this specific thing about coding yeah. and these different yeah. types of platforms and languages of coding but it's more talking about people's stories so then someone can say oh yeah i want to be like you know like joel for example or i want to be like tamina mm. you know like people can actually say yeah. um they can look up to someone yeah and that's the goal right is to look up to have people in our community that people can look up to so that they can say well if if they look like me and they've had a, a lived experience like me i can also do yes. that as well whereas yes. whereas at the moment a lot of people in my community um will work in spaces like um justice health education um, you know, and things that are really critical yeah. components of things that we're working really hard on. Yeah. But I guess the way that we look at um, the stuff that we do around STEM and particularly technology is saying, well, actually technology can lay over all, all of those, those, areas, yeah. those areas. So yeah, yeah. so you can actually dynamically work across all of those and utilize technology to enhance those different um, those different yeah, okay. um, areas. And this is, this is, I guess, a lifelong mission for you. This is not a one year, two year, like you, you've been at this for a number of years and it, we've still got, a long way to go right yep yeah absolutely and i think you know that's that passion has come from i guess my own lived experiences mm. and my own journey and knowing what some of the possibilities and opportunities are um but also historically from you know the journey that my family um have taken as well when we talk about some uh you know community culture mm. and identity but then also yeah. politics when it comes to like yeah. mainstream politics and business as well and so really being able to 
look at all of my learnings and my experiences through my life and then how that's kind of brought me to this point of yeah. really wanting to make that change, knowing that I'm still on that that journey and surrounding myself in my community mm-hmm. as well with people that want to go on that that journey too. Yeah, and, and look, there's, there's plenty of others that I'm sure would want to help you on this journey. So a little bit of a call to action. What can other business leaders and organizations do to help you on, on this path? Yeah, it's it's actually quite quite an interesting one because we we have this um this quite uh, and this this actually talks more to some of the HR side of things is mm. um, this desire for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to be hired into tech tech roles and so there's this huge huge demand at the moment and at Indigitech we have so many people knocking on our doors <laughs> going oh we want to we're, we're hiring for this role we're hiring for that role we've got all these different roles we got these traineeships we got these mm-hmm. grad programs and. Can you can you help us you know get yeah. get people in and but um but the, the the talent pool isn't necessarily as large as as, as what it could and should be mm. and that's again because of those historical factors which I mentioned before that are related to um you know the foundational elements that relate to inclusiveness of the STEM ecosystem to have yeah. Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people in it yeah. but then also embedding Indigenous ways of thinking, being, doing, and knowing into um those ways as well so when you potentially move into that learning and that workspace across stem how can i also bring my lived experiences my knowledges and my um experiences from my people my community mm. to be able to influence the way mm. that a workplace or a project may yeah. evolve and develop yeah so look there's you know in in my time um talking to young aboriginal students um i've come across a few different challenges you know one of the challenges that that I've heard directly is around um, for young people who are moving from communities, so in regional or remote areas, and then coming to the city to study. And there's been that pressure from the family um, to to achieve. Sometimes it's pressure from the family or community to return home. Um, and it's also about the young person's ability to to manage this. You know, first time out of community, alone, not enough support networks. What what do you think can be done to help? you know, young Aboriginal students or young Aboriginal people who are moving to different parts of the country to um, to succeed. Yeah, I think um, the key thing, and we talk a lot about this, is um, understanding yourself and your identity mm. and really being able to um, be connected with that. And that doesn't mean knowing your identity in terms of like, oh, yeah, you're this Aboriginal person and or Torres Strait Islander person, and but it's more so about understanding who you are as an individual, yeah. and then and then where you kind of fit within, um, I guess your ecosystem. And the idea behind that is to really help people um, connect with who they are and what their purpose is, basically, so that then that then gives them that drive of understanding as to why they've mm. potentially moved off country. So that's the language that we use in community yeah. is you, you live on country, which yeah. means that you live where you come from yeah. or you live off country and you, you're living away from, from home. And so, and so our idea is really about helping people understand that, that identity of who they are so that mm. the decisions that they make are grounded in, in, in purpose. Yeah. But then I guess a, a way that we look at also helping people or um, encouraging people to cope with that as well is to, connect with other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in um, in the space that you might end up moving to. Yeah. But then also how do you then connect as well with non-Indigenous people too? Because I guess I look at that from my own life mm-hmm. perspective and 
you know, I play um, like I play a lot of basketball, so I have like a massive network around my basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, I play a bit of golf, so I have a network around that as well. But then I have my family, my community, and I have a network there too. And having all of those different things has helped me become who I am, but it also grounds me in yeah. um, my comfort of, of who I am and what I'm doing. Yeah. And we really want to be able to try to continue to push and grow that. But the other layer to that too is going back onto country as well. Yes. So it's a huge part of, yeah. of what we talk about is being able to connect with your country, your family, your community and your stories yeah. and knowing those so that you can continue to go back and refuel and reconnect. Yes. Um, so that that is something because that is something that is a part of yeah. you. That's your connection. That's your ancestry. That's your stories. Mm-hmm. And that's made you who you are and your, you know, the stories of your ancestors, your grandparents, yeah. your parents down, down to you. And so really making sure that, you know, as best as possible that you maintain those connections. Cause it doesn't need to be a binary choice. Like you're either on country or off country, right? It's yeah. like, no, you can always come back. Cause that was one of the questions I was going to ask you is how, how do you keep a connection to culture? You know, when you're, when you're moving to a new environment, and, and I think you touched on it, which is reaching out to, to people, different people, uh, you know, pursue your interests. Uh, in Digitech is a good network, you know, if, if you're in the tech space, um, finding that connection, maintaining connection, going back to yep. visiting country. I mean, how, what, what are some other ways that you maintain connection to culture, Liam? Firstly, I travel back onto country a lot, so I'm, I'm fortunate enough and and I know that I'm fortunate to, to have this, so... Um, is my connection to my my country and my community yeah. and my family because um, not all people have that opportunity. You know, you have stolen generation and the impacts of of that, which has led to a disconnection of yeah. some Aboriginal yeah. Aboriginal people yeah. being connected, um, disconnected from their families. Um, where I come from, um, particularly the Gumbangera Nation, which is uh, through my dad's line, um, you know, we have strong connection to our stories. Um, language and culture mm. um, and we're, f- we're quite a fortunate um, community because when you look at communities on the east coast um, a lot of them have had a lot of those bits and pieces um, stolen away and they've yeah. um, been lost or they're um, you know or they haven't been rediscovered um, you know looking through old um, documents and assets mm. and things mm-hmm. but but yeah so we've been quite fortunate and for me um, having that but then also continually talking to and connecting with with my um family and community especially here in sydney as well so like the, the point i made before when i met that young aboriginal guy yesterday yeah. and, and you know and being like, oh, where, where are you from like those things are important as well because when i after i had that conversation and i was just like oh that's so amazing like yeah. it's just it's, it's so great to be able to connect with um a person and see like the connection yeah. that that i have with them even though that i've never met them before yeah. and where they where they actually live is like 12 hours away from here mm-hmm. but there's that there's that connection that i actually have with that person and, now. and it's so quick so how, how fast you can develop rapport when you've got something as big as that as your common you know commonality um because i get this when i speak to other people in vietnamese yep you know and so that language is that instant booster in terms of trust building and then they'll be like you know where are you from and then i remember i bought um i was in canberra and there's there's this place where i buy lunch from pork rolls and everything and it turns out they're from the same hometown that my family's from wow you know and then then we had to ask like are we are we are we related and then when we talked about grandparents no no but that built instant rapport and that was you know almost two years ago yeah and every time i'm in the shop now we have like awesome banter. Yep. I think it's about asking the right questions and framing it in the right way and just being 
easy going. Yeah. I think you're an easy going guy. So, you know, yeah. A, yeah. a lot of people would, would find conversation with yeah, you. Yeah. There's a huge thing to be said for um, interconnectedness mm. and, and, and mm. the desire to want to be able to um, find commonality mm. and share uh, purpose and, you know, and history with, yeah. with people as well. And I think there's, there's, there's a lot that can be said to when talking about that point before around, um, uh, you know, I guess identity mm. is interconnectedness is a huge yeah. part of that as well. Well, we touched earlier about closing the gap, okay? And, and you know, today we, we're talking about the Indigenous digital economy. Um, you talked about closing the gap earlier and there were some challenges around that. Let's explore that a little bit more. I, I want to get your point on, you know, investment in infrastructure in, in Aboriginal and Torres Strait, Strait Islander communities. Like what do you think is happening at the moment? What do you think needs to happen? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, firstly, there just needs to be an assessment and understanding of um, some of the um, infrastructure needs and wants and then where, where there's um, a deficit. Mm. And, and when we talk about these um, scenarios as well, when, we're not only talking about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. This is um, a challenge for rural and remote mm. um, communities in general mm -hmm. around having um, access to infrastructure. Yeah. Um, and there are things that are happening, but they do move um, a little bit slowly just, you know, because of um, bureaucracy, um, uh, resources as well, especially given yeah. now that the world is, is – it's a little bit difficult to, to get access to resources. Mm. But now we have, we're seeing um, – uh, I'm hearing stories of people in communities – um, trialing and testing Starlink. So, oh, great. So, you know, and, you know, and, and I think that that's, you know, a great opportunity to see, you know, with the resources that you, um, limited resources that we have access to, how do we tap into something that, mm. that can actually give potentially quick access yeah. and, you know, sustainable access or stable access, yeah. um, you know, to, to get online. Um, I guess the other thing as well is, um, is when we're looking at investing in infrastructure in these communities and these locations, is making sure that there's um, the progress in the development and learning that's happening as well. Mm, so instead yeah. of going like, oh, yeah, I'm some corporate and I've got 100 laptops that I can refurbish and that I can send out to some community and then, like, you know, and then we're sorted and, you know, no, I, want, I, I, yeah, yeah, I don't, I, I don't want to be offensive to some corporates. But yeah. Sometimes they do that and they're like, yeah. oh, well, that's a massive tick in our yeah. corporate social responsibility box. It's like, well, no, 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 because you also have to understand the needs of those communities as well. So you, you might actually have more of an impact sending out five to 10 devices as opposed to sending out 100 mm. because then 90 to 95 of those could end up just gathering dust and mm. doing nothing yeah. because you're, you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to actually create an opportunity for learning and development so that you're not just dumping yeah. these devices in these or this infrastructure in these locations. You're actually building up yeah. those communities as well to be able to use those those that technology and that infrastructure as well. Because that was one of the discussions we had very early on when we met. Um, and we actually met at Supply Nation, you know, about five, six years ago. Because one of the questions I, I asked you is, you know, how do we train, how do we how can we allow, enable, provide opportunities for young indigenous people to stay in community but access tech jobs? That was that was one yeah. of the questions that you and I engaged on very early. It was one of the um I guess you know, and I don't want to say that there's like huge advantages, but it was one of the advantages of um, the lockdowns from from COVID was that um, globally, but yeah. also as a country, we had to work out how to still continue to work while we're working from home, yeah. and you know, and being able to leverage and utilize technology, and to the point now that um, I'd say that eighty percent of my meetings are 
online yeah. and 20% are in person. Whereas in the past, I would have, it would have been 90% in person mm-hmm. and 10% in um, online. Yeah. And even that 10% that was online would feel really awkward about like yeah. meeting online. So like the whole narrative is switched yeah. so much to the point that, and this is, you know, we talked specifically about this before COVID around the things that now ended up happening as a result of COVID yeah. of like the accessibility mm-hmm. of being able to live, learn and work on country. Yeah. And now we're actually like practicing that in our day-to-day lives. And it's so normalized to actually, have a hybrid setup now where you yeah. like you you know you might work from home for three days a week and then two days in the office so why can't we have the same mm. scenario for aboriginal and torres Strait people to live and work on community but you know maybe pop in once a month or once every two mm. months for mm. you know f- for a week in the yeah. office yep. but they're still able to work out on, on country yeah. because then the value of then being able to work out on country is that you decentralize the economic opportunity firstly but then those individuals who might work for some type of company that's based in the city, but they're mm-hmm. working on country, other people then see them and say, oh, what do you do? Yeah. So they ask them questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I like what you, how do I do what you do? Yeah. So that's that whole idea, as I said before, around- Role modeling, see it, I think that's what you're yeah, saying. Absolutely, yeah, the yeah. whole role model idea. Yeah, yeah. So the more that we actually provide these opportunities, we're actually also providing economic development within mm. those communities as well. Mm-hmm. And it's not only Aboriginal communities that will have the economic development, will also be- the other regional and mm. rural communities yeah. that um, that end up having that that benefit too. So yeah, it's yeah. not just an indigenous challenge; it's yes. a challenge that we can work with for all yes. regional and remote communities. Yeah. One of the other things you know we, we we found out is you know you were involved in formulating the Australia Council for Arts Digital Culture Strategy, which has an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander focus component to it. Um, so I, if you could just, I know we've been talking about. Uh, digital development but if you can just talk a little bit more about this strategy that you help formulate which i hope you can talk about yep. um but it was priority five support first nations digital development yep. so what like can you give us a summary of of, of what that means and, yeah. and what was the experience like for you yeah so so it's actually off the back of um well not off the back but through the whole um COVID experience so it was actually this movement in general around digital transformation for artists in general so not specifically indigenous but artists in general and then a component within that was um had an indigenous focus and then that then indigenous focus ended up becoming becoming an uh, an entire project yeah um in yeah. itself to really focus on um indigenous digital transformation for for indigenous artists mm-hmm. and um what we did find was um what were identifying some of the needs for artists in locations and different locations for the different types of art forms mm-hmm. but what are the different types of tools that they might need to actually apply their craft um, and then be able to do that in an online environment mm-hmm. and still be able to um, uh, participate um, you know economically um, you know and continue to drive that the mm-hmm. whole conversation around self-determination yeah. and so what we ended up finding through that the process was uh, a need for the investment in the infrastructure yes. Yes. which was was um, quite a big thing and one of the roles is, is that Australia Council doesn't necess- can't necessarily um, resolve the <laughs> the infrastructure side of things, yeah. but they can utilize and connect uh, and create those connections and partnerships mm. to be able to do that. But the way that we looked at the relationship with the Australia Council and Indigenous communities was the role that um, Australia Council can play around being able to provide resources, networks, and connections to be able to increase and enhance yeah. the skills and knowledge to be able to digitize different forms of, of yeah. art so you know when we're talking about digitizing art yes. we're talking about 
how can we um, support an artist who might do thing, their artwork on canvas to become a graphic designer? Yes. And then what does that then lead to? And then what is the economic opportunity or the, or the and I put it in inverted commas, the entrepreneurial opportunity for, um, for individuals and also cooperatives mm-hmm. to be able to go out and build their own kind of economic yeah. base and business base to sell their artworks to the world? Or, you know, the alternative is um, how do we help performing artists be able to actually yeah. – um, live stream or record their mm-hmm. sessions and then mm-hmm. be able to then post post those you know and share those with with the world yeah. to continue to, to to do their practice but do it in an online way because then what ends up happening as a result is you end up being able to create something and then you might end up having more scale and more volume to actually do that because you don't have to travel to all these yes, different yes, locations yes, yes, yes. and then set up a, a stage in an environment yeah. you can actually do it in a single yeah. location and then uh, you know, do it more often. And I feel like w- with these opportunities, you have to be conscious and deliberate about providing these opportunities to, to Indigenous people as well because otherwise as this space grows and evolve, um, if you don't have that economic opportunity, that involvement, there's going to be skills development but it won't be for, you know, young Indigenous people, for example. So I think you've got to be quite deliberate. And, and I'm really fascinated with your involvement in all of this because, you know, that's a policy piece there, right? And then you're also really practical in terms of your involvement um, with Indigitech uh, and also your your company, NGNY. So I want to travel back a little bit and I want to understand, Liam, your leadership journey. Like what's brought you here, you know, and and what's – and how did you get here for this to be your focus? Because you've been a big voice in the digital space, um, not just specifically about Indigenous people, but generally like digital tech. Tell yeah. us about your leadership journey. Tell us about your journey. Yeah, yeah. So my journey, I guess, you know, using the, the, I guess, the terminology um, leadership is, uh, I guess it's been, uh, you know, more more organic um, of a journey. And, you know, we talked about this earlier around this concept of um, the utilisation of terms like, oh, such and such is a born leader mm-hmm. or, or, you know, or, um, or we've taught this person to be a leader, but um, but I think that you have different types of leadership skills, and for me, it's really about the journey that I've taken to to learn as I've kind of progressed along. Yeah. But also, when I you know look at I guess people in my family, people outside of my family, and understanding leaders within my community, really just sitting back and watching and listening uh, to them about um, their journeys and, and and you know the types of traits and characteristics and attributes that they have yeah. that have kind of led to, to leadership. And actually, I remember one time I was sitting at this this event and, and, and my dad is, um, you know, a leader in our community. And he was like, in the past, um, you know, very, very heavily involved in a lot of um, policy and yes. like national um, domestic, um, uh, you know, politics and yep. opportunity yep. for Indigenous and non-Indigenous. Trailblazer. Australia. Yeah. Absolute yep. trailblazer. Yeah. And, and, you know, and so being able to, to grow up with that and see that that's mm. influenced my life. But I remember I was watching my dad at this um, talk once and they were talking about what is, what is your measure of, um, of, of success, mm. you know, and, and, you know, how do you measure your success? And a lot of people were talking about it in terms of like their careers mm. and, um, and financial side of things. And then my dad said, oh, I have a few things. So he said, um, how well I can impact my family and, and my, my kids in being able to do what they want to do and then um, uh, and then how well I can then also um, 
positively benefit my community mm-hmm. and my people mm-hmm. to continue to, to strive ahead culturally, but mm-hmm. also, um, you know, uh, in like a domestic sense as well mm-hmm. from, um, you know, I guess um, a commercial sense yeah. um, or a Western sense, I yeah, should say. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that always stuck with me because I was like listening to everyone and they were kind of like talking about those other things. Mm-hmm. And then when my dad said, I was like, oh, wow, that like, you know, those, those, those moments in your life where you hear things that really like stick with yeah, you. Yeah. And, you know, so when I kind of think of, I guess, you know, leadership, leadership to me is something that is embedded in purpose. Mm. And so, so it's not like you just go out to be a leader or something yeah. and then you're just like chasing a dream to be a leader. Your leadership ends up being tied to whatever your, your purpose is and your purpose might be yours. It might have, you might have a shared purpose with other people, but what is your role with, within that? And then how do you then, how do then people actually connect with them? Um, with that purpose and the narrative around that purpose and does that mean something yeah. um, to them as well because then when you build that narrative you create um, a purpose to help people understand yeah. what their what their potentially hidden purpose might be and so it's about like really creating that connection and I see um, when people go out and they kind of just try to be leaders and try to force it yeah. um, I just tend to see that people end up stumbling um, yeah. a little bit so I think that leadership is actually more of an organic journey yeah. that, that a lot of people, um, you know, do take. Because it's also about the actions and the results that, that you create, right? Like, I mean, you can say things to be a leader, but if your actions don't reflect any of that, <laughs> people aren't going to follow you. Definitely got to lead by example. Right? You, you, cannot, you cannot go out and kind of preach to the choir yeah. but not practice, you know, that, yeah. that as well. And I think it is hugely, hugely important. Actually, I always say this to, to people, yeah. if you have to – be successful in order to be successful if you have to go and you know scrub your toilets and do everything that you can mm. no job is off limits yeah. like to, to, to be a leader so you yeah. just you just have to get down and dirty no matter what you have to do can we talk about your approach to learning because we were chatting about it earlier and you said you know you gave me some examples around um, how you approached I guess university and, and you took a different approach to the traditional one can you just talk to us about that because I found that quite fascinating yeah 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 so um so when I was when I was in high school, you know, and, and you know, and I kind of think about uh, the the journey of my my peers um, at the time. Uh, a lot of them were, were talking about, oh, yeah, I'm going to go and do, um, you know, like a law degree, or I'm going to go do like a very specific kind of mm-hmm. degree that that is, you know, quite quite niche. Um, and they might have particular nuances within those areas, but they're they're, they're very niche. Yeah. And for me, I was just like, well, um, I still want to explore my pathways and my opportunities and. Um, and I had a general interest in doing business yeah. um, at the time. So I did a business degree because I, in, I was interested in that, but also because I was like, well, I know that I can keep my, my, my pathway open because when you're, you know, seven, 17, 16, <laughs> 17, 18, and you're trying to make a decision about your career path, but you don't even know too much about it other than yeah. what you've learned in school. By the time you get to uni, you start to explore and go deeper and like your, your lecturers and, you know, your tutors actual like practitioners in those spaces and you learn more from them and so you pick things up and then what i would do as well is i'd actually study with students from other faculties as well and so through that that journey i would like pick up bits and pieces of what they do and really try and understand what they were doing to help me like learn about what pathways that it is that i want to take so when i had like a few different things that i wanted to do and i didn't pursue tech as a pathway i kind of saw that um as as an opportunity Mm. um uh, as I learnt in my three years at university, um, what I picked up from other people 
um, you know, people in my network, my connections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then eventually, um, you know, that became the pathway. I'm like, yep, I can definitely, I can definitely go down that pathway and feel comfortable and confident yeah. because I've also built this network as well. Exactly. So that when I, when I'm in those workplaces, I can actually call up the people who I went to uni with and be like, oh, hey, I've, I'm, I've got this this problem and this challenge. I want to throw this idea off yeah. you, you know, so, so it was really about And you're getting that. a different perspective that could create an even better solution for you because how is this affecting how you see learning and development for future generations? Because you told me about, you know, the need for, say, agile, was it agile thinking? Yeah. Um, and, and that approach instead of traditionally traditional subjects, you're saying maybe we should consider these subjects or yep. these types of subjects. Yep. For learning. Yeah. yeah. So, so the, the, the agile framework and methodology, mm-hmm. I think, is is something that, you know, should be taught, taught in school. Mm. Um, and so when I kind of th- think of the agile framework, it's, you know, a way of being able to, to kind of be, um, practice and productive, not only in a workplace, and it doesn't have to just be tied yeah. to technology yeah, yeah. or engineering or project management, but it, it can actually be a methodology of doing things, you know, in terms of like um, short sprints, failing fast, like lean methodology yes, as well of yes. being able to like have an idea and then put something out there and then see how, how people um, respond, to respond to it and then being able to like um, uh, like allow, allow it to evolve yeah. um, as opposed to like saying, well, I've got this big idea and this big, you know, this this solution that I think is going to work. And then when someone then kind of goes like frowns at a little bit, like you get super upset. And that's an experience <laughs> that I had in the past yeah. with um, a business that I was involved in. Um, walked into um, my first business. We were looking for investors. Walked into a, a room with a couple of investors, presented the idea. And then um, my business partner, he wasn't upset when people would challenge the idea. He was he was furious and walk out of <laughs> out of meetings sometimes. And I just said, we have to have a better way yeah. of being able to yeah. do this. So instead of actually saying we've got the solution, we go on and we just hypothesize ideas and test yeah. mm-hmm. different concepts and then see how people respond. And then they might go, oh, maybe if you morph it, it and pivot yeah. a little bit with this, and then you end up coming up with a solution. I think that there's huge opportunity in the world to be able to kind of think down those pathways to actually instead of over investing yep. how do you take short sprints to this, actually come up with a proper I think solution? this is why you know really keen to follow and support your your journey in terms of um, building the the indigenous uh, economy digital economy really keen to, to support so please let us know if there's anything that we can do you know if there's introductions we can make or anything Absolutely. like that Liam um Thank you so much for, for all your insights so far. We're going to move now to the Fast Five section. This is where we're going to ask you five quick questions to learn a little bit more about you. Are you ready for this? Yeah, I think I am. What was your first job and why did you get it? So, it was a paper boy. Um, I was uh, in year four, year five um, at the time. Um, I always had a desire to, um, uh, to I guess, have a little bit of like kind of financial independence it was kind of just this thing that i had as a kid and so yeah and i was like oh yeah because i want to buy something then you know i should be able to go and like work for it and earn it and then um instead of having the challenging conversation with my parents and saying i can have a couple of bucks to go up the street to buy a drink and a a lolly it's like well no i'll have my own money to be able to to be able to do that so i always had this drive to to have a bit of independence respect what's something interesting that's not on your cv i I guess is my connection to um, my culture but also so, so my actually my traditional name um, on my Gumbangara side is Nyara, yep. um, which is which is um, turtle. Yep. Um, and then coincidentally, on my um, when I was initiated into uh, like a clan up in Papua New Guinea, mm. um, my name is Talangi, and that's also sea turtle as well, and it's pure 
coincidence. Well, you've got so, a shirt on that has the turtle. That's, yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, you did tell me about uh, about this journey. Yep. You know? Yeah. That's that is coincidental. Yeah. Like, that's spirit, I remember spirit animal. When it, when it happened, I walked around to um, different members of the, the community and family up in Papua New Guinea. I was like, did someone talk to someone else about <laughs> my connection? I call up my family as well. I'm like, did someone? They're like, no, no, no. no. This was just this was just a coincidental just, connection. What have you learned about leadership and working on a team that you would want to teach your younger self? Be comfortable to stretch your comfort zone um, a day at a time, a week at, at a time. And so I remember when I was younger and I was thinking, well, what would I ever even do with my future? And just looking at the world and going, yep, I'm scared of this mm-hmm. entire thing. Like where am I going to even land? What I've learned is that I've been able to stretch my comfort zone a day at a time yeah. to get comfortable. If you asked me to public speak, you know, 10 years ago, mm. I'd walk out of the room so no one could even see me so that I wasn't even considered to be the person who would do the talking. And so, you know, so it's just that gradual uh, over time being like, you know what, I'll just put my hand up and do this. Yeah. And and over time it adds up. Absolutely. Lot. Can you provide a highlight from working in a trusted team? Every, actually every day with my, with my team at NGNY. So before about nine months before COVID, mm. we decided because um, I was doing a lot of travel um, overseas, we decided to shut down our office, mm. and it was purely a test to see how we would go, not having the four walls and seeing if we could just actually work from home. We had systems and processes built in our business to be able to um, to do that, but we we're testing those as well to see mm. if we could if we could break them or if they could stand the test of time, mm-hmm. and. And then so what ended up happening is through that process, we ended up realizing before COVID the trust and the connection that we had as a team and the purpose of what we were trying to achieve in our business and how all those bits and pieces came together. The puzzle came together for us to be able to have a a trusted team that continues to push ahead and, and, and move forward. And so when the whole COVID challenge came around with work restrictions, we didn't have that challenge because we'd already we'd already been set up down that path, and because being an IT based business around mm-hmm. using lean methodology approaches to things, we would it just simplify the entire yeah. process. And so everyone in the team really thinks along those lines, and so everyone just it's knows their role. Great business continuity planning, you know, <laughs> inadvertently. What would you like your legacy to be? I guess that I was able to empower um, and support people in my community to be able to continue to. Um, thrive or start to thrive and then continue to thrive and then be able to then influence other people um, in community and also including in in my family as well Uh, because I think that there's a huge opportunity. Um, I see this so much in Indigitech that there are a lot of people who have all this amazing talent Mm. but they don't have the confidence and comfort in themselves to be able to actually allow that – those skills and experiences yeah. to share those with the world and what we do it in Digitech is we actually help people actually dis- discover that confidence and mm. so someone some people will turn around and say um oh you like really like trained up this person to be real i'm like no no no. they were already great they just didn't realize it and we just helped them yeah. actually um, un- untap that and so that's really the goal of what we want to continue to do that's amazing. Liam, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your insights and your experiences and your journey. I'm fascinated by where you're going and the things that you're pushing. I'm looking forward to continuing to support you. Um, so please let us know. But again, thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you for having me. It's been awesome. Today's guest was Liam Ridgway from NGNY and Indigitech. These are organizations that support the participation and success of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the tech industry. We got insight into the importance of education, training and development, 
We talked about the Indigenous digital economy. We also discussed the challenges of keeping connection to culture and the opportunities that Liam is helping to create in the new digital economy. You can learn more about NGNY and Indigitech on their websites, which are linked in the show notes. And you should definitely follow Liam on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to the HR Think Tank with Kai No. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share our podcast with your network. Check out the show notes for any resources mentioned in today's episode or visit the Verify Now website for more information.